So we are, I think, also this is a timely message, I think, as well, for some of the situations we're in. Um, we are jumping ahead in the Gospel of Mark. I need to do better about telling you guys where we're going next so you can actually read in advance. So um, this week we are in Mark chapter 4. Uh, it's verses 35 to 41, as um, Pastor Mark said. We're talking about storm. It's very confusing when I feel with the Gospel of Mark. Um, <clears throat> but we were in chapter 2, I believe, uh, last week. Uh, but we're jumping ahead uh, into 4. Uh, I'll briefly recap what took place in between. It's kind of material that we've, in some extent, talked about when we were in Matthew. Um, but what we're going to be doing, right, we're still in the first half of the Gospel of Mark. That means the focus of the book is still very much the question of who is this man? And uh, so we're going to see some more answers this week. Next week, we're going to more yet more answers, because next week we're going to jump into chapter 6 with the feeding of the 5,000 and the, the walking on water. But today we are looking at calming the storm. And, and so again, that question, who is this man, is kind of the, the big key question that Mark is trying to make sure we get, that we are really clear on this. And uh, I wrote up here some of the names we've seen so far, or some of the ideas we have seen so far from previous weeks. Uh, you know, last week we talked about the Lord of the Sabbath, the bridegroom, the new wine, uh, the preacher before that, the Holy One of God before that, the Son of God before that. What we are kind of jumping over, because we talked about it a lot in Matthew, is that in chapter 3 of the Gospel of Mark, the Pharisees decided they needed to kill Jesus. They had enough of this guy. They answered for themselves this question, who is this man? And their answer is that he's someone possessed by Satan. That he is, uh, this is where they blaspheme the Holy Spirit. They accuse him of casting out demons by the power of demons. Chapter 3 of Mark is also where, because of that, right, we talked about this when we were in Matthew. If you were here, that's when Jesus really starts using parables a lot to basically shut out those people who don't want to know, who don't want to hear, who don't want to hear the truth. So that's their answer. Pharisees answer, Someone possessed by Satan, working as an agent of Satan. What we're going to see tonight as we go into these short uh, verses is a very decisive answer to who is this man. <laughs> that he is someone so powerful, his closest friends and followers are utterly terrified by him. This is not something we often think about with the context of Jesus. Uh, because I think of our kind of the way we've been raised to relate to him, but it's fascinating, right? And this is a story that that I, I apologize I did preach on it about 18 months ago. If you're here in August, about a year and a half ago, but and I don't like to repeat. It's the second of the two I'm doing in the Mark series that are a repeat uh, of something that I have taught on before. But this story is to me so important to understanding the case that Mark is building, what he is trying to communicate about the identity of Jesus that. We have to touch on this to be faithful to the gospel of Mark and what he's trying to communicate. Um, when we were gathered here last week, I mentioned that when we looked at two stories, and um, they were the two in the series of conflict stories, events where Jesus had a conflict with uh, rabbinical leaders and Pharisees and so forth. When we jump over chapter 3, when we jump into this part of chapter 4, what we get is this is the first of a series of 
miracle stories. So from here, for quite a while, uh, Mark is going to be relating a number of miracles that Jesus does. So it begins with this one, calming the storm. Uh, then in chapter 5, we're going to see him casting out the, the legion of demons. Uh, we'll see the healing of the woman with the multi-year bleeding. We talked about this, I think, uh, in Matthew. Uh, bringing Jairus' daughter back to life. Um, and then it's going to culminate with feeding the 5,000 and walking on water, which we're going to talk about next week because that is a super important cycle for early understanding Jesus. Uh, so that's where that's where kind of that's the setting for where this is in the book. It's good to stay oriented with where you are anytime you're in a book of a Bible. Uh, these passages are not in isolation. I've talked about this before, right? These authors are writing with a very intentional purpose. They're writing in a very structured way. Uh, it's not just sort of a stream of consciousness. Mark reads a little bit like a stream of consciousness, but he knows exactly what he's doing. He's He's very intentionally writing and carefully communicating things, truths about Jesus. So uh, the activity, uh, again, chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. I'll read through it, and then we can, we can talk about it a bit. <clears throat> On that day, and this was, uh, by the way, a day that Jesus had been teaching, seems to be almost all day. He, I have mentioned before, Mark really emphasizes the crowds, the way he's just kind of a rock star. He's... He's got so many people thronging to see him. And so he has actually been teaching from inside a boat. He was on the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee, or lake, it's really a lake, but whatever, Sea of Galilee. Uh, the crowd is so big that he gets into a boat to teach it. He's been teaching all day long. It was on that day when evening had come. He said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace. Be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is quite a, quite a happenstance. He, uh, the first part is quite simply explaining a crossing of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was, I think it's about seven miles wide and maybe 14 miles north-south. Uh, so they're crossing over after this exhausting day. He's been teaching all day, a lot of parables, a lot of things going on. Uh, and it seems like he's still in the boat and just decides to cross while he's still in the boat. And I think that's probably what it means when it says that um, they, they, they took him in the boat just as he was. I think that means he didn't, you know, they didn't go back and do anything. They just said, all right, hey, we're already in a boat. Let's cross. Uh, so they... They go across, and a terrible storm comes up, which is not an uncommon event in the Sea of Galilee. The, the Sea of Galilee is kind of at the bottom of a bowl, um, speaking in terms of the layout of the land. It's, the Sea of Galilee itself is 696 feet below sea level. 
but it's surrounded by mountains, so it's kind of like a, a basin, a natural basin. Uh, and so that's going to tend to get some, some interesting atmospheric dynamics with wind and things as it comes sort of comes in off the, off the Mediterranean Ocean, it hits the mountains, it gets stirred up, and then whoosh, goes rushing down the mountains into a basin. And so you get these colossal storms sometimes. And uh, it says that the waves are, are crashing into the side of the boat, and that the waves are breaking over the side, the boat is starting to fill, and, and this is not a huge boat. Um, if I had a little more media, I could get you a picture, because they've, they've actually recovered a Galilean boat from that era. Uh, if you Google it, you can see what it kind of looks like, the Galilean fishing boat from about the first century. Uh, they're not huge, uh, not small, not like a, it's not like a rowboat, but, you know, you could... It's not like a luxury yacht either. So when it starts to fill up, it becomes concerned, right? And you can tell that they're, they're getting concerned about this. But Jesus doesn't seem to be concerned because he's asleep. Right? I, think there's, I don't know if there's a little echo of Jonah here as Jonah goes sleeping through the, through the big storm that, when he's trying to run away from God. But anyway, Jesus is in the back of the boat asleep while this terrible storm is whipping around them and, and the boat is filling up with water. And, and obviously, like I said, they're freaking out. I think Jesus is calm because he knows who he is. He knows ultimately what his fate is. He doesn't have anything to worry about. He's in control. He knows he's in control. But they don't. So he can sleep fine, but they get really worked up that, that he's taking a nap. And they ask him this question, and I don't know how it doesn't come off nasty. I've got to think that there was some, some anger there. I can sort of picture myself having this kind of frustration. Not that I really think, you know, somebody could do something about it, but just be like, don't you care that we're dying here? You know, you're just sleeping through this. We're all going to die. I mean, I don't know. They think he's going to bail water fast, help him bail water or something. But I, uh, well, whatever it is, they see, I take this as a very negative question, right? As people who are scared... And they're just lashing out the guy who's not bothering to help uh, bail water or row faster or whatever because he's taking a nap. It makes me wonder how often we sometimes uh, accuse God of not caring in the midst of our crises. That when we're experiencing bad times and we don't get an immediate relief in answer to our prayers, you know, do we, do we kind of go into disciple mode and, and, you know, scream out to God, don't you care that I'm, I'm suffering down here, that my boss is a jerk, that, you know, the money's tight this month, or, or whatever the topic is. Uh, I think we see the disciples here. I think it's a mode we can got in, kind of get into as well. And like I said, I think we're going to find out that the reason that he's so calm is he's in control of the situation. Right? He's got nothing to worry about. It's not, I think the important thing to understand is it's a crisis for the disciples. It's not a crisis for him because he is in control of the situation. And that kind of mindset is important, right? In fact, he's, he's going to be using this crisis for his glory. Right? This crisis becomes something that will be talked about for thousands of years to explain why you should trust in this man. So, of course, he's in control. And again, that gets back to that idea. Like, how many times do we accuse God of, uh, or, or lash out or in our darker moments think, you know, God, do you not listening? Do you not care about me or about my situation? 
And then later we can look back and see, well, God was there all the time. And in fact, he used that crisis, whether it's for my good or whether it's his glory, uh, in some way um, that we don't get because we're so busy panicking while we're in the moment. Then verse 39, it says he awoke. And I love this, right? He wakes up, right? And obviously not terribly groggy. He's, he's immediately with it. Uh, he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And, and he's giving orders here. He's giving uh, commands to the wind and he's giving commands to the sea. And we have to understand that. That word rebuke here is also the same word that's used earlier when he's casting a demon out. So same way he said, demon, get out. He's wind, be still. And it does. Same thing. And, the, and I want to make sure we, we understand that, you know, if you're a Jew, okay, that's great. Right? We'll talk about what they probably understood out of this situation in a minute. But if you're anybody who's not a Jew at this time or for the next several hundred years and you read this story, you're probably somebody who believes in a lot of different gods. You know, whether you're Greek, whether you're Roman, you know, whatever your background, you believe in lots of different gods. And they tend to, you know, there tends to be one god who's in charge of the air or the wind. There's one god who's in charge of the, the sea or the water. There might be a god who's in charge of the storm. They're different gods, right? If you read your Greek mythology, they're always fighting with each other. You know, Poseidon, the god of the sea, doesn't always get along with Zeus, the god of the air, and things like that. And, and so they're distinct sort of domains of power. And Jesus very neatly here exercises control over two of them. So if you're a pagan and you're used to thinking one element, one God, and here's a guy who controls two very distinct elements that mythologically tend to be viewed as opposing each other, and yet they both immediately obey him, you have to draw some, some conclusion that he's incredibly powerful. Right, this is one of the things that, and it, it really you see a, a pattern from Old Testament as well, where in the Old Testament we'll often combine two or three different kinds of elements that God has control over to indicate that unlike all you pagan, you know, Babylonians and Assyrians and Egyptians with all your dozens and dozens of little gods who, who are involved in one little part of the world, the true living God has control over all of the forces of nature, all of the areas of the world. This is a message consistently throughout the Old Testament. And, and again, I think, I think this is communicating this as well here, that we need to understand that he is not just some minor demigod. He's not some little miracle worker. He is the one who controls these two very distinct natural forces. I want to read a couple of passages from the Old Testament as we go through this uh, to help us understand a little bit about what his disciples had to have been starting to think about when this happened. Not just, yeah, we're alive, we're not going to die. Uh, we'll see they actually get more worked up than they were before. But it's Psalm 65, verses 5 through 8. And the psalmist writes, this is David in this case, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out 
of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. Right? So he talks about stilling the roaring of the seas and the roaring of their waves. And, and what was emphasized in this story was, was the way the waves are crashing into the boat and, and breaking over the side of the boat, filling it. And just as God here stills the waves and the seas, Jesus does too. And the wind obeys, right? It doesn't just calm down a little bit. There's not just a little bit of a slackening. The scripture says there was a great calm, meaning both the ocean, in this case the lake, turned glassy smooth. When I say lake and sea, right, we use it. In Greek, it's the same word. Um, so just it's frequently translated in English as the Sea of Galilee, but it's really just a big lake. Uh, anyway. That's why I've used them interchangeably. Uh, the sea has gone calm, glassy smooth, and uh, the wind is immediately silent, right? This isn't just a little bit of a slackening. It's not good timing, right? He didn't get lucky. This is total calm. This is exactly what the psalmist David is talking about here. But there's a psalm that I think is even, even more explicitly and directly applicable, and that's Psalm 107, Verses 23 to 32. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' ends. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders." This sounds very much like what just happened. They were out on the sea. The storm was brought upon them. They cried out. Their courage melted away. The disciples' courage certainly did melt away. You can just see it in the tone they take with Jesus. They, they almost never get upset sounding with Jesus, but they're upset sounding with Jesus. They cry to him in their trouble, not even, not even knowing who he is, right? We know because at the end of this, they come to the, who is this guy, question. Right, they cry out to him, and what does he do? He makes the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. What God did here is exactly, exactly what Jesus did during this stormy evening. This, I think, is what really gets the disciples to where they are in the next two verses, which is very concerned he says in verse 40, why are you so afraid? Right? Why have you still no faith? He's taken them to, along with him to see some truly astounding things. They have um, seen him cast out demons over and over and over again. They have seen him heal people who are sick over and over and over again. Right? He has... Um, you know, uh, healed, I think, the paralytic by this point. 
the man with the withered hand. Um, they've seen so much. And yet they're not getting it. One of the themes we talked about, right, the two big themes of, of Mark, one is who is Jesus, one is, one is uh, about discipleship. And part of that discipleship element in the Gospel of Mark is about discipleship failure. The disciples fail a lot in Mark. Which, as I said before, should be a great encouragement for us when we mess up, right, because we're in good company. They messed up a lot. And he says to them exactly why he was able to take a nap, right? Why he was taking a nap and they're panicking. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? They don't, they don't get it. But they should have. They've seen a lot. And I wonder, too, for us sometimes, particularly in the midst of difficult times, in the midst of craziness that I think seems to be accelerating in our world, um, as well as at times in our personal lives, do we sometimes get like the disciples? Because we have faith. We have solid faith in Christ. I'm sure of that. We have his word. We have his example. And yet, I think sometimes we still fear lots of things. Right? Things scare us. We get worked up about them. We get upset about them. We, um, I suspect there are many who are unsettled in these days. And again, I think that's only going to be more so, um, biblically speaking. And part of the point of this story is that this is Jesus here, right? This is the one we have faith in. This is the one we believe in. And we need to understand that he is a really big Savior. He can handle really big problems if we let him. If we can just let him deal with the problems and not live in the fear. The message about fear comes up quite often in the Gospels, that we ha should not be afraid. Right? It actually goes back even to the Old Testament. Be not, do not be afraid. Be courageous. Not because bad things aren't going to happen to us, right? or not because we're blind idiots who don't realize what could happen to us. We, have no, we don't need to be afraid because we have a really big Savior who's right there in the boat with us. Doesn't mean he's always going to make our storm go away. But he's always in the boat with us. And if he's in the boat with us and we're in the boat with him, ultimately we don't have anything to be afraid of. This is something he wants us to understand here. That even when he doesn't fix the problem, he is in control of the great situation and he is in the boat with us at all times. This is something that we should, I hope, more and more embrace and just delight in, this realization that Jesus is in the boat with us. That this is one of the great privileges of believing in Christ as Lord and Savior, is to be able to just rely on him and his presence. Again, not that he's going to fix every problem for us, but that he wants to hear us, he wants us to bring the problems to him, and that he will comfort us and walk with us through them. And that's, that's just, you know, that the more we think about it, the better it is, right? Because the more we think about it, the more we realize how good it is. The more we realize how good it is, the more we want to think about it. And this is a great thing to think about as a part of our devotional time. <clears throat> but I want to look at um, verse 41, because it's one of the ones I, I don't know, I find this one really, really fascinating to me. 
Verse 41, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So it's kind of interesting. They've been going along with him for a while, and they've seen all kinds of really amazing things, but this really gets their attention. And I don't know if it's because they're so scared or just that somehow all the other miracles seemed okay. Like, I get it. Yeah, he's pretty cool. He's powerful, but miracles are miracles, whatever. I, I don't quite get the, the leap, right, for them where this is so much above and beyond. But clearly this is so much above and beyond anything they had ever imagined. So whatever they thought they knew about him, they knew he was wise and smart. They, they knew he could do miracles, but this is clearly beyond anything they had conceived of him. So you see their mind expanding, you know, stretching, getting bigger. But they don't quite get it yet, but they're asking, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him, that he can be the master of nature? But that phrase at the beginning, I think, to me, is what fascinates me. They, they, they were filled with great fear. The, the Greek says that they feared a great fear. It's an interesting phrase. It wouldn't be really good English. But in Greek, you, the, if you really want to emphasize something, you double up the word. You use it two times in a row. You use it as a verb and a noun. That's, a, that's an emphatic way of speaking. So whereas English, that's bad form, and you should use a variety of words. In the Greek, you didn't, if you wanted to make a point. The point is, they're terrified. As I read it, they are more scared now, when they're not dying, than they were when they thought they were going to die. And clearly, based on the way the, the question they're asked, the thing that has them scared is Jesus. Because I think they had got him in a little bit of a box in their mind, like, I get it, he's a cool teacher, he's a, he's a rebel rouser, a troublemaker, he works miracles, and whatever, and all of a sudden, whoa, this guy controls the wind and the waves. They ask who he is, but I think in their heart, they're already beginning to realize who he is. I gave you those two earlier psalms, right, where Jesus did something very much like God. I'll give you a couple more, just a, a, one more to give you a sense of, I'm pretty sure they're getting it in their, in their heart that, that he is not just the most amazing rabbi they've ever seen. It's Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the seas. When its waves rise, you still them. I think the reason they're so scared is they are realizing that the guy at the other end of the boat is God. That he is God in the flesh. I, I think they're recognizing that, that, that not just is he doing miracles by the power of God, but he is indeed God himself. Because it makes sense then, because if you look throughout the Bible, the most common reaction people in the Bible have when they encounter God or an angel of God, uh, God's representative, is sheer terror. Because he is so amazing, so powerful, so much above, so far beyond, that you, they experience terror. I'll give you uh, one example from Exodus. I'll probably give you two examples where i got a little bit of time. We are going to try and wrap up short to, to do something that is a little bit overdue. But I want to look at Exodus 21, verses 18 to 21. It's uh, related to the giving of the Ten Commandments. 
right? And when the, when the Ten Commandments were given, God had summoned all the nation of Israel to the mountain. And his presence came down in the cloud on the mountain, and he speaks the Ten Commandments. And the people are just terrified, overwhelmed by the presence of God. They say, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, "Uh, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. They are so afraid of the presence of God. They're like, hey, Moses, you go take the messages. It'll be fine. We can't, we don't ever want to be this close to God again. They they literally beg Moses to make it so that they are never this close to the presence of God again. They're so scared and overwhelmed. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Right? They're supposed to be afraid so that they get the, the, the idea that following his rules are a good idea. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. That's the kind of fear, I think, that the disciples were experiencing in that, in that boat after their lives were saved. Uh, I'll, skip, uh, I'll skip the next example. I was going to talk to you, uh, another. There's lots of examples in the Old Testament whenever an angel comes. One of the ones I find funny is... Um, I won't read it, but it's in Judges 13. It's when uh, the parents of Samson, they're visited by an angel who says, oh, you're going to have a, you're gonna have a, a miracle child. Uh, and after the, and the husband is kind of a dope um, through the whole story. Uh, anyway, once, once the angel, you know, once the offering finally, you know, he makes an offering, and the offering's you know, taken up to heaven, consumed by fire or whatever, and the angel disappears, the husband finally gets it, and he's like, we're going to die because we just saw God. They just saw the messenger of God. And, you know, I think the wife is, if I remember, it's kind of like, uh, I think if he's going to kill us, we probably would already be dead. I mean, those aren't word for words, right? That's it's kind of a new translation, but uh, kind of a, that, that idea of that fear of, of God, right? And that's the interesting thing is that's one that I think, uh, it's because they recognize his power. They recognize his amazing transcendence. That's the fancy word for it, the way, how much above us he is. And it's very interesting because, as uh, I mean, one of the great privileges of being a Christian is that we have God's presence in us, the Holy Spirit. He's very close. We feel his closeness. Uh, he genuinely is our loving father. He, uh, Christ genuinely is our adoptive brother. But I wonder sometimes if we've lost a little too much of that sense of, the power and the majesty of who it is we relate to and who it is we get to pray to and who it is we get to enter in the presence of. Uh, I think we get a little over-familiar in our culture. And that's where it's good to see some of these encounters and realize that this person who, who, who has given us our salvation, right, who, who, uh, who loves us dearly, who we love, is also the one who controls the wind and the seas and has this astonishing power. So the question that we've been asking that Mark wants us to ask, who is this man? Of course, he told us right off the bat. He is the Christ, the Son of God. I think finally, the disciples are beginning to suspect that he is God himself. 